G'day and welcome to Series 2 of The Other Side Australia. I'm Damien Curry. Well, it's been a while. More than a year, in fact, since our final episode of Series 1 in December 2021. We now have a new main home right here on ADH-TV, Australia's leading voice. And of course, you can still follow us on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube at Other Side Oz, where you'll always find links to the show. If you're new to the show and have never seen us before, welcome. The purpose of this show is to provide you with a weekly wrap of the news in around 30 to 40 minutes every Friday that will keep you up to date and also challenge the assumptions of Australia's old media. We're different in two important ways. Firstly, we have a different worldview to what's dominant in Australian old media and politics right now. We believe in traditional classical liberal values that free people operating in a free society will usually lead to the best outcomes for everybody. That government isn't meant to be our parent or guardian. That we're meant to take responsibility and look after ourselves like adults most of the time. And that we must actively work to keep government small or it'll become a monster and we'll lose our wealth and our freedom. Now there's nothing radical about these views. It's called classical liberalism and it's been around for hundreds of years. You just don't hear a lot of it in Australia anymore. Unlike the US and UK, apart from some very brave independent media outlets like ADH, there really is no other side in Aussie media. We're here to help fix that. And the second way that we're different is that we're open and transparent and honest about our perspective on things. So even if you disagree with us, even if you're skeptical, I hope you enjoy the ride of having your views challenged a little bit. It's actually a lot of fun. And I hope we keep you up to date every week too. So welcome, or welcome back to The Other Side Australia. Well, the video of the week goes to Elon Musk's interview with the BBC that was conducted at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco. The BBC reporter foolishly hit the tech business genius with a naive question about hateful speech on Twitter, but then failed to provide a single example or even a coherent definition of what he thinks hate speech is. Content you don't like or, or hateful? What do you mean to describe a hateful thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, just content that will solicit a, a reaction, something that may include something that is slightly racist or slightly sexist, those kinds of, those kinds of things. So you think if I'm, something is slightly sexist, it should be banned? I, no, is that I'm what you're saying? I'm not saying anything. I'm saying. Well, I'm just curious. What you, I'm, I'm trying to understand what you mean by hateful con content, and I'm asking for specific examples. Um, and if, and you just said that if something is slightly sexist, that's hateful content. Does that mean that it should be banned? Well, you've asked me. You've asked me whether my feed, whether it's got less or more. It, I'd say it's got slightly more. That's what I'm asking for examples. Can, right. you, can you name one example? I, I honestly don't. I, I, honestly, I you don't, can't name I, a single example. I'll tell you why. Because I don't actually use that for you feed anymore. Because I, I just don't particularly like it. But you and said actually, a lot of people. A lot of people are quite similar. I, I, I only. Well, I only look well, at hang my, on a second. You said you've following. seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example. Not even one. I'm not sure I've used that feed for the last three or four weeks. And I. Well, I then how did you see the hateful content? content? Because I've been, I've been using, I've been using Twitter since you've taken it over for the last six months. Okay, so then you must have at some point seen the you, for you hateful content. I'm asking for one example. Right. And and I, you can't I, give a single I, one. And, and, and I'm saying, I've, I, then I, I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. Really? Yes, because you can't give me a single example of hateful con a content, not even one tweet, and yet you claimed that the hateful content was high. Well, that's a false. 
No, what I claimed, you just lied. What no? No, what I claim was. Uh, there are many uh, organizations that say that that kind of information is on the rise. Many organizations. Oh, yes. Many social justice organizations who've never liked Twitter, never liked Elon Musk, and most tellingly of all, never complained previously when Twitter was run by left-wing interests. I mean, did this guy do any research at all before this interview? Didn't he see those Twitter execs lined up and torn to bits in the US congressional hearings two months ago? One Republican lawmaker back then really let him have it over a ban that she copped for a tweet that they didn't like. So I'll ask again, did you shadow ban my account? Yes or no? Again, not to the best of my recollection. So the answer is, Mr. Roth, yes, you did. I found out last night from Twitter staff that you suppressed my account for this tweet. It's a freaking joke about Hillary Clinton being angry that she couldn't rig her election. It's a joke, but in response, being the sinister overlords that you all are, you placed a 90-day account filter so I could not be found. You silenced members of Congress from communicating with their constituents. You, you silenced me from communicating with the American people over a freaking joke. Now, who the hell do you think that you are? Election interference? Yeah, I would say that that was taking place because of you four sitting here. The Hunter Biden laptop story was suppressed. A sitting member of Congress was suppressed. A, a sitting president was banned from Twitter. You know, I bet that Putin is sitting in the Kremlin wishing he had as much election intervention interference as you four here today. Ouch. You go, girl. That's uh, U.S. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert from the Colorado Republican Party. Now, let's remember... The old Jack Dorsey-owned Twitter took it upon itself just before the Trump-Biden election in 2020 to ban the New York Post's entire Twitter feed, one of America's oldest and most widely read newspapers, simply because they broke and were reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop story. Imagine if it was Donald Trump Jr. who left his laptop in a repair shop and it had incriminating stuff on it. It was part of a wider story suppression strategy that most likely lost Trump the election, because if people had known about the Biden story, many wouldn't have voted for the guy. And it turned out after the election that the story was true and the ban was unjustified. So it seems this BBC reporter didn't do any research at all. No, Twitter feeds aren't becoming more unpleasant if you're on the right side of the political spectrum. In fact, it's liberating to be able to hear what all people think on an issue and not just those who share the views of Californian tech executives. But apparently, whatever the cool kids in London are saying down at the pub on Friday afternoon about Twitter feeds becoming more unpleasant isn't just someone's opinion, it's gospel truth. You just lied. What, no, no, what I claim was uh, there are many uh, organizations that say that that kind of information is on the rise. Now, whether, whether it has on Give my feed or example. not, I mean, I, right, and Literally if you look at something one. like the, the uh, Strategic Dialogue uh, Institute in the, U in the UK, they will say that. So they, Look, people will say all sorts of nonsense. I'm literally asking for a right. single example, and you can't name one. Right, and as, as I've already said, I don't use that feed. But let's, well, then how let, would you know? Let, that I don't you, think this is getting anywhere. You literally said you experienced more hateful content and then couldn't name a single example. Right, and as I said, I that's absurd. I haven't, I haven't actually looked at that feed. I then would how would you know this hateful content? Because I'm saying that's what I saw a few weeks ago. I can't give you an exact example. Let's move on. We have, we only have a certain amount of time. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, let's move on. That gotcha attempt didn't work. It backfired on me, so we'll just, we'll just move on now. <laughs> At least British citizens have the right to opt out of paying for the BBC on their tax forms. It's a pity we don't have the same free choice in Australia with the ABC. So our weekly news and commentary summary show, The Other Side Australia, this show, will stream at 8pm every Friday night on ADH-TV. You can watch live or on demand anytime you like after that. And I'm pleased to say that every Tuesday night now, we'll be streaming and uploading a new show called The Other Side Interviews at 6pm. This will be an opportunity to take a deep dive on specific issues of the day with some of Australia's leading thinkers. So please support us by telling your friends, grabbing their phones and downloading the ADH TV app for them on your favourite app store. It's on all the app stores. And most smart TVs also have ADH in their app store. So, uh, and we'll be coming to, to all smart TVs soon. So you do want to get the app on your TV for easy access so you can catch Alan Jones every Tuesday and Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock. Alexandra Marshall on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. Fred Paul, Dave Pello, Professor Dave Flint, Lyle Shelton, Daisy Cousins, and many other great shows are right here too. ADH TV is Australia's new leading voice and Australia's fastest growing new media platform. The latest data for 2022 deaths in Australia is in and the Bureau of Statistics has released the complete year's mortality data. It's important because deaths have been well higher than usual and lots of people are keeping an eye on the numbers. The Bureau says that slightly more than 190,000 people died in 2022, which is just over 25,000 or 15.3% more than the historical average. Now that's more excess death than at any time since World War II. The Bureau says the jump in deaths from COVID in 2022 was significantly above 2020 and 21. 10,000 deaths were recorded as being due to COVID and 3,000 with COVID, meaning due to other causes primarily, but had COVID-19 as a contributing factor. So that's 10,000 COVID deaths. It was the number one cause of deaths in January and July last year when we had the two big Omicron waves. But what were the other 15,000 excess deaths from? Well, there were about a thousand more heart disease deaths than usual, and there was a jump in deaths from chronic heart disease. Now that's the kind of heart disease that isn't a sudden heart attack, but it's the result of a longer running heart condition. Now, usually acute and chronic deaths are roughly the same every year, but the Bureau of Statistics says that in 2022, chronic heart disease was 25% higher than acute heart disease. Cancer deaths were up about 2,500 on 2019. We usually have about 50,000 cancer deaths a year, sadly. Dementia was up quite a lot from around the usual 15,000 to 17,000. The flu, influenza, was down, so it wasn't influenza. And cerebrovascular diseases, strokes and aneurysms and things like that, were also not any higher. But if you add all these major death causes up, we're still not quite at the 5,000 mark. And that leaves a good 10,000 deaths still unexplained. Now, the Bureau of Statistics just crunches the numbers. They leave it to the experts to do the analysis, which is fair enough. But what is our government doing to try to find out the cause? I mean, given the billions we spent on COVID and the massive debt we racked up and the unprecedented infringements on our civil liberties that we all endured, surely this 
10,000 extra deaths is a crisis worthy of serious investigation. Well, no. Sorry. There was a motion in the Senate two weeks ago, sponsored by United Australia Party Senator Ralph Babette, to hold an inquiry. The motion was, of course, immediately voted down by crossbench senators because, well, you can't possibly let someone from one of those parties be taken seriously, darling. And the senators on the crossbench are mainly Greens, remember, and they'll reflexively balk at anything suggested by a Conservative or centre-right politician. Queensland Liberal National Party Senator Gerard Rennick spoke in support of the motion, insisting Australians deserve an inquiry. Yeah, we do, but we're not going to get one. So please ignore those 10,000 extra deaths and instead pay attention to this debate over here we're having about setting up a new bureaucracy to continue our great track record of not really helping Aboriginal people while just pretending to do so. Now, people who used to watch my podcast back in 2020 and 21 know that I am no anti-vaxxer. I like medical science and we're all living a lot longer thanks to medicine and vaccines than we used to. The anti-COVID vaccine community weren't happy with me having that view and boy, did they let me know it. But I think it's a personal choice that you make with your doctor. I am and have always been strongly anti-vaccine mandates because nobody has the right to tell you what you can and cannot put in your body, especially when we're talking about a new medical technology like mRNA technology. I was slammed for that position too at the time. Some people said it was irresponsible because of the social case for getting vaccinated. Well, we now know that the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. So the only social case for mandating vaccines is to stop hospital beds filling up because people get sicker if they aren't vaccinated. Meh. Personally, I think that's a very weak argument for such a serious mandate from government. Most people were vaccinated anyway, and governments were trying to cover up the fact that they didn't prepare properly to cope with any extra big hospital surge, because the hospital systems in most states are just not up to scratch, and we all know that. And a surge didn't happen anyway. So the mandates, in my view, were inexcusable. Now, you'd think the pollies would have learned their lesson, right? No, of course not. Have a look at this exchange between the United Australia Party Senator Ralph Babbitt and the Labor government's Senator Katie Gallagher just last month. The health minister in the Albanese government is a guy called Mark Butler, but he sits in the lower house of parliament, the House of Representatives. So when someone asks a question in the Senate about health, it goes to the Minister for Women, Katie Gallagher. Now this clip's a little long, but bear with us. I don't want to edit it too much like they do in the old media news channels because I think it's really important that we actually get to see how our politicians perform unedited. So take a look. Senator Ralph Babbitt from the UAP asking the question first. Minister, can you please confirm if a Department of Health has investigated this large increase in excess, mort in, in excess mortality? And if they have, can you advise the Senate what is causing this spike in deaths? I can say that uh, the Department of Health uh, would, as routine, uh, look at the reports that come out through the ABS. As uh, the Senator indicated in his question, the reports that the ABS does into mortality statistics, um, the reports they do on the causes of death, and of course uh, the Department of Health would look at those and examine those to see uh, if there are any trends or issues of concern. Um, I think uh, I'm advised that it's important to note that increases in deaths. Oh, 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 what? <clears throat> Sorry. So we are we are cutting it. Okay. Yes, we will cut this answer because she uh, 
She goes on for another minute saying, well, nothing. So Senator Babette fires off a much more specific follow-up question. Thank you, Minister. Now, you mentioned some causes of death there, but you didn't mention myocarditis and pericarditis. Now, Minister, is the government confident, confident that none of this is because of the mRNA injection? Minister. Um, President, I thank uh, Senator Bebe for this uh, supplementary. Uh, and uh, I would say that um, COVID-19 as a virus also impacts uh, the health and has those health consequences. So pericarditis, myocarditis is also, if you have a bad case, a severe case of COVID-19, that is a, is a side effect, a consequence of that. And I would also say that uh, the data shows that for those who are unvaccinated, so haven't had a vaccine, primarily an mRNA vaccine, um, they are much more likely to end up in ICU or passing away. So those who are, are not vaccinated or not up to date with their vaccination. And for people in my age group, it's 32 times more likely to end up in hospital if you're not vaccinated. So um, the answer to the question is, yes, we are confident. The, the government and the approving authorities are confident that the mRNA vaccine is safe you, and we urge people to be vaccinated. Senator Bebet, second supplementary. Thank you, President. Now, Minister, given that you're so confident... Order! Order! Minister, given that you're so confident that mRNA is so safe and is so effective, when is the government going to release the data to support this claim? When are you going to talk to Atagi and tell them to give us the information? Are you going to do this, Minister? Thank you, Senator Bebet, Minister. Well, the, thank you. And I would say the safety of the vaccine is, is uh, whilst Atagi has a role about the uh, provision of the vaccine, who should be provided the dose, the approving authority is the TGA, and they do publish adverse events uh, through um, quite frequent reporting. I think it's either weekly or monthly reporting of adverse events, events relating to vaccination status. I would also say that, of course, people are entitled to get advice from their health professional about whether the vaccine is safe for them and take that advice. But I would also urge people, with the fifth dose becoming available, to please remain up to date with your vaccinations. It's not just an individual decision. This is the thing. It's not just about an individual's decision and keeping yourself safe. It's keeping other people safe from, these vac from this uh, virus. That's the Australian Minister for Women, Minister for Finance and Minister for the Public Service, Senator Katie Gallagher from the ACT. Well, Ron DeSantis, the high-profile Republican governor of the US state of Florida and the only contender who might be popular enough to seriously challenge Donald Trump for nomination as the Republican candidate for next year's US presidential election, has released a new book and has been travelling around America promoting it with a series of speeches this past few weeks. One of the most notable events was a speech at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in the very Democrat US state of California. Governor DeSantis invoked the memory of President Reagan and his commitment to small government and warnings about letting government become too big in a country. And President Reagan understood this, his famous quote that uh, I'm the most terrifying words in the English language, or I'm here from the governor, government and I'm here to help. He, he understood the vital role that government had to play. He didn't say no government. 
and he understood that there was uh, core functions of government, but he also understood how government could be a negative force if not applied properly. Probably not something you'd ever hear an Australian politician say, Labor or Liberal, but the US is different. There you can compare directly what happens when you have states run by big government socialist leaning parties and those governed by small government classical free market leaning parties. We have had a great experiment, a great test in governing philosophies because of course you know we approach things much differently in Florida than you guys have out here, uh, much differently in Florida than they've done in New York and in Illinois and many of these other states. And what has the result of that been? You know, you have an in elections in your state, and that's fine, but the American people as a whole in some ways have voted about this experiment because they voted with their feet. And if you look over the last four years, we've witnessed a great American exodus from states governed by leftist politicians imposing leftist ideology and delivering poor results. And you've seen massive gains in states like Florida who are governing according to the tried and true principles that President Reagan held dear. At this point, I'd like to remind everyone that interstate migration from Victoria to Queensland is continuing at a pace of around about 20 to 30,000 people a year, although the Bureau of Statistics data on this is a little bit out of date, I might add. Uh, the last time the Bureau got its act together on these numbers was uh, about two years ago. And unemployment in the state of Florida, the December numbers, we were 2.7%. New York and California were 4.1%. We have significantly more people employed than we did prior to COVID. And states like New York still haven't recovered. And for the first time in recorded history, the state of Florida has more total people employed than the state of New York. And that's saying some because we got a lot of retired people in the state of Florida. So those results speak for themselves. But you know, We've always had lower taxes in Florida. That's nothing new. Uh, we've never had an income tax, and we've always worked to keep government small. So that in and of itself, while it contributes, that is not the only reason why people have moved. I think the pandemic caused people to reevaluate who was in charge of their state governments more than any other event in my lifetime. Throughout 2021 on this podcast, I strongly criticised Australian state and federal governments for taking a single advisor approach to crisis management throughout COVID. We saw premiers like McGowan, Palaszczuk and Andrews effectively handing over responsibility for the management of their states to health bureaucrats. And that, as we pointed out at the time, is an abdication of responsibility and it goes against every crisis management rule in the book. A leader's job is to collect information from everyone and own the final decision. You can't run a health crisis that affects the economy, civil liberties, human rights and people's jobs and small businesses just by listening to the epidemiologists alone. Otherwise, you might end up seriously harming more people later from the unintended consequences of lockdowns and mandates than the virus itself could have harmed. It was grossly irresponsible. In America, Ron DeSantis, as governor of Florida, the equivalent of an Australian state premier, is famous for not going with the trend of taking the health advice as supreme and instead listening to all advisors, putting the health advice right at the top, but listening to everybody and carefully considering all the possible unintended consequences. And you had to make a decision about how you were gonna handle that. Were you as the governor gonna look at everything, consume the data yourself, 
be mindful of your state's economic well-being, the education of your kids. Yes, health in terms of COVID, but also health in terms of every other thing. Or were you going to basically subcontract out your leadership to health bureaucrats uh, like Dr. Fauci? Well, in Florida, we were mindful of President Eisenhower warning in his farewell address uh, about the dangers of allowing a scientific technological elite to get a hold of public policy, because Eisenhower observed, they don't see the full picture. They are focused on one narrow aspect. And so you consult with that, but a statesman's got to harmonize all the different competing interests in society. Fauci doesn't know anything about the economy. He doesn't know anything about education. He doesn't know anything about your rights. Indeed, he doesn't care about your rights. And nor should he. He's supposed to focus on the health side and advise the leader who's then supposed to take all the other advice and make and own the decision. Now, this is something that escaped Palaszczuk, Morrison, McGowan and Andrews somehow. We need more leaders like DeSantis everywhere in the Western world, not virtue signalers, leaders. It was never a case of health versus the economy. It was a case of health versus health. Our pathetic media in Australia focused only on the silliest of numbers. They never challenged the authorities about the scope of their thinking. And now we have huge excess death numbers, and 10,000 of which are unexplained. And so when the world went mad, when common sense suddenly became an uncommon virtue, Florida stood as a refuge of sanity, a citadel of freedom for people throughout the United States and indeed throughout the world. We refused to let our state descend into some type of Faucian dystopia where people's rights were curtailed and their livelihoods were destroyed. We made sure people had a right to work and we got people back to work and businesses back open. We made sure that every school in the state of Florida in that 2020 school year was open because people needed to be in school. Governor DeSantis, who was re-elected in November last year with a significantly increased majority, take note Liberal Party people, said he refused to allow Florida to become a biosecurity state, insisting that, shock, adult citizens make their own medical choices. And so we did things, we did things like ban vaccine passports in the state of Florida. Some states said, you want to go stay in a hotel, go to a restaurant, you got to cough up your vax papers on these MNRA shots. And we said that's none of their business. Everyone has a right to participate in society. That's a personal choice that you make whether to take that or not. And we're not going to let you be excluded. So what happened in Florida without vaccine passports and apps like we had everywhere in Australia? Did people start dropping like flies? Did hospitals get overrun with the evil unvaccinated? Yeah. No. In 2021, Florida firstly set a record for domestic tourism. California had declined by 22%. New York City was down 43% during COVID. Florida accounted for almost half the US tourism from foreign countries. So people knew if you're going to spend your hard-earned money and you want to go on vacation, you actually want to be on vacation. You don't want to get hit up for medical papers or told you have to wear a mask or do all these other things. They knew they could come to Florida and they knew they'd be free. And this is not just something that we beat our chest about because we're more free. This had a direct impact on the livelihoods of hundreds of thousands of people 
who work in our tourism and hospitality industry. Yeah, did you catch that? People, humans, their lives, their well-being, their livelihoods, and their health. Things that matter. I hear too many people in Australia say, oh, all these people care about on the right is the economy. They don't care about people's health. <laughs> the economy is people's health. But let's put all of that aside. Let's forget about human rights, individual civil liberties, and oh, silly stuff like the economy for a minute. I mean, the half of Victorians who voted for Labor, the Greens, or other left-wing parties at the state election last year, they clearly don't care. They're clearly happy to make the rest of us do what we're bloody well told based on the decrees of health bureaucrats. And they're happy to let police use significant force on the rest of us to get their own way. They don't care about civil liberties or the economy or jobs or small business or kids' education or mental health. They care about shutting down right-wing nutjobs. And just one number, the COVID death toll, just that one number. So all of this sacrifice we all made was for our own good, right? That's what they told us. I mean, Florida must have COVID death everywhere compared to Canada and New York, oh, sorry, California and New York, right? Florida had less increase in excess mortality than both New York and California. See? Wait, what? Could you, could you repeat that, please, Governor? And every state saw an increase in excess mortality. Unfortunately, that's what happens in a pandemic. Uh, Florida had less increase in excess mortality than both New York and California. So all the mandates, all those other things, Florida had less of an increase. Oh. We also understood that this being a personal decision with respect to these shots, nobody in the state of Florida was going to be put to have to choose between a job they needed and a shot they didn't want to take. We protected all of our employees from the mandates. Wow. We need a royal commission into the Australian federal government and state handling of this pandemic. Our nation is now $1.5 trillion in government debt and rising. Our kids are going to have to pay that back. Our kids lost valuable time at school. They've had their development hindered as a result. Thousands of people lost their jobs. Thousands more suffered from the isolation of pointless lockdowns. This was the greatest episode of misgovernment our nation has ever seen. And we cannot let this pass without careful review. You can reach out to us anytime at The Other Side by emailing us at info at othersideoz.com. That's just info at othersideoz, A-U-S, not O-Z, I don't like the O-Z, A-U-S.com. If you'd like to be added to our mailing list, you can just put add me or opt in in the body of your email and we'll put you on the mailing list. So don't forget to join us every Tuesday night on ADH or anytime on demand also for The Other Side Interviews, our weekly interview show. Uh, this show, our weekly summary show, will drop every Friday night and our interview show every Tuesday night. And this week on the interview show, my guest is Campbell Newman, the former Liberal Party Lord Mayor of Brisbane and Premier of Queensland, who was the son of not one, but two 
federal liberal ministers. You don't get more liberal than that. But he resigned from the party in 2021 in disgust at how far it had strayed from traditional classical liberal values. He joined the Liberal Democrats, ran for the Senate in Queensland at the last federal election, but wasn't elected. We'll be discussing the topic of the future of classical liberal and conservative politics in Australia. Is the best way forward through the Liberal and National Parties? Or is it through smaller, minor parties? Join us for that very interesting discussion on Tuesday at 6. Australian Senator Jacinta Price has inspired the nation with her exceptional maiden speech to Parliament when she took her seat in the Senate for the first time last July. It really should be lauded as one of the all-time great political speeches in our country. It's been decades since I've heard anything as inspiring from an Australian politician. For our international viewers, Jacinta Price is an Aboriginal Australian woman who wholeheartedly rejects the doctrine of victimhood. She was elected to her hometown council in 2015, where she fought relentlessly to improve the lives of Indigenous children by tackling head-on the real issues that face Indigenous Australians, like domestic violence and alcohol dependence. In our federal election last May, she was elected to the Australian Senate, representing the Northern Territory. This government has yet to demonstrate how this proposed voice will deliver practical outcomes and unite rather than drive a wedge further between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. And no, Prime Minister, we don't need another handout as you have described the Uluru Statement to be. No, we Indigenous Australians have not come to agreement on this statement. She's a powerful force, and that's why Labor and the Greens hate her. She tears down the victim narrative they love. The story that all big government socialists hold dear. That you are oppressed somehow, and you need us to take care of you. Senator Price is having none of it. I am an empowered, warpy, Celtic Australian woman who did not and has never needed a paternalistic government to bestow my own empowerment upon me. We've proven for decades now that we do not need a chief protector of Aborigines. I've not got here, along with 10 other Indigenous voices, including my colleague, Senator for South Australia, Karen Little, to this 47th Parliament of Australia, like every other parliamentarian. Through hard work and sheer determination, that's how we got here. However, now you want to ask the Australian people to disregard our elected voices and vote yes to apply a constitutionally enshrined advisory body without any detail of what that might in fact entail. Perhaps a word of advice, since that is what you're seeking. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to everyone, and not just those who support your virtue signalling agenda, but also to those you contradict. It's a speech that should be shown to every Australian school student today to spark an informed and complex debate about racial issues in our country. Not the oversimplistic debate we have now that reduces everything to European colonisers bad and Indigenous people good. But we must always remember that our nation is not simply black and white. We are rich with the contribution of Australians of many backgrounds, 30 per cent of who were born overseas, and this is one of our greatest strengths as a nation. My elders 
taught me that any child who was conceived in our country holds within them the baby spirit of the creator ancestor from the land. In other words, Australian children of all backgrounds belong to this land. They too have chukurpa, dreaming, and they too are connected spiritually to this country. This is what I know true reconciliation to be. These teachings cannot be delivered through legislation, nor through any corporate reconciliation action plan. These teachings are about what it means to be a modern human in an ancient land. It's time to stop feeding into a narrative that promotes racial divide, a narrative that claims to try to stamp out racism but applies racism in doing so and encourages a racist overreaction. Yes, it is time for some truth-telling. Senator Jacinta Price in her maiden speech to Parliament. She went on to slam the patronising tokenism of welcome to country statements, which are now delivered before almost every public event. Throughout Australia, the reinvention of culture has brought us welcome to country, or recognition of country, a standard ritual practice before events, meetings and social gatherings by governments, corporates, institutions, primary schools, kindergartens, high schools, universities, workplaces, music festivals, gallery openings, conferences, airline broadcasts, and so on and so forth. I personally have had more than my feel of being symbolically recognised. Now, more recently, another Liberal Party senator, Alex Antic from South Australia, a rising star of the Liberal Party, gave a speech that was specifically about the welcome to country practice. He told the Senate that many Australians, Indigenous and non-Indigenous alike, are tired of the virtue theatre. Welcome to country ceremonies are now as ubiquitous as they are inescapable. Australians are forced to sit through these rituals everywhere from the commencement of parliament to school assemblies. They're now more common than singing our national anthem. And far from being an ancient practice, these rituals began to be used by progressive activists in the early 2000s. The practice suggests that Australians whose families have lived here for generations, possibly since settlement, are not welcome. The welcome to country is nothing more than something wealthy city people love to do to make themselves feel good. All Australians have the right to call this country home, but the activists and bureaucratic classes want division as it perpetuates the victimhood mindset which they use to manipulate people. And by the way, When's reconciliation actually going to be achieved? What, what does it look like practically? Will it be achieved when we've got a treaty, when it'll be achieved when Australians are paying some sort of rent tax, or perhaps when there's a new Indigenous nation that will further divide Australians? The answer is that activists will never be happy, and we all know it, because bitterness and resentment are their bread and butter. So next time you're asked to participate in one of these ceremonies, remember, despite what they say, refusing doesn't make you a racist. So here's my memo to the grievance industry. Thanks for the virtue theatre, but like most Australians, I'm sick and tired of being welcomed to my own country. Liberal Party Senator Alex Antic from South Australia. A leading centre-right political commentator from the UK says the political classes of the West are out of sync with what their country's ordinary citizens think and want. But it's up to the ordinary citizens to push back and speak out more if we want the problem fixed. Carl Benjamin has more than a million followers on his YouTube channels, The Sargon of Ackard, as he's sometimes known, and The Thinkery. 
and he's a former candidate of the British political party UKIP. Appearing on the Alexandra Marshall live show on ADH TV this week, Carl Benjamin discussed his core political values. Among them, reducing UK immigration, abolishing laws that control speech, purging wokeness from institutions, reducing the welfare state and promoting family values. Well, clearly he's a right-wing nut job and a threat to democracy. Benjamin says these values are held by most people in Western liberal democracies and politicians and the political elites in media, education and the corporate world are simply out of step. They simply have a very different and very left-wing perspective on what politics should be. And this, I mean, we, we should be aware that this was the great project of the left to essentially capture the political discourse and render certain things out of bounds using political correctness as a weapon. Um, and they've been very successful about this. And we should be we should recognize this and reframe ourselves outside of their paradigm, because unless you want transgender children, unless you want criminals to be treated as victims of society rather than uh, authors of evil actions, uh, then you will always find yourself in the left-wing paradigm uh, essentially committed to these premises. And I'm not committed to these at all. I think that they're completely wrong. I've spent many years analyzing each, one, each argument from the left in detail, and I've come to the conclusion that they're all just simply false. They're just wrong and bad arguments. For the generation that claims that it trusts the science, there doesn't seem to be a lot of truth around, and the press are asking us to look at the faces of, for example, male criminals and call them women out of politeness. So should ordinary citizens who want to be, you know, quote unquote, good, go along with this endorsement of ideological fantasy? Is it good to deceive people? Is it good to play into delusion? Is it good to speak about the world in a way that's fundamentally not true? And sometimes you have to be tough and you have to be uh, realistic about things. And that's actually the kind thing to do, because when you build uh, a house on an edifice of lies, it will eventually come tumbling down. And the, for, the longer you go on with these um, delusions, the worse it becomes when eventually they become untenable. And you have to say, well, look, that, none of that was really true, actually. Uh, the, the longer you feed into it, the more painful it is by the time it all comes crashing down. So I think actually being you know, firm but fair and saying, well, look, actually, this isn't true and I'm not obligated to commit to it as a truth. Uh, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but I am trying to make sure you understand that this is just something on which we can't agree. Uh, I think that's something that um, again, I'll just call them conservatives, but this is just essentially encompasses almost all regular people in the world. Um, the the regular people of the world just have to have to be have to find the moral fortitude to say, look, I just don't agree, uh, and I'm sorry you're talking nonsense, and I'm not going to go along with it. That's British political commentator Carl Benjamin from the YouTube channel The Thinkery there, speaking to Alexandra Marshall here on ADH TV. Alex's show is on every Saturday morning at 8am. It streams on ADH and also online for you at any time you want to watch it, as all our shows are. It's a great interview, so uh, do check that one out.
Well, that's it for episode one of season two of The Other Side Australia. Thank you for being with us on our new main home here on ADH-TV, Australia's leading voice. And of course, you can still follow us on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube at Other Side Oz, AUS. Join us every Friday night or on demand anytime you like for our weekly wrap of the news in around 30 to 40 minutes. And remember our weekly interview show streaming every Tuesday night and on demand starting this coming Tuesday. And I'll be speaking with Campbell Newman about the future of conservative, classical, liberal and libertarian politics in Australia and the future of the Liberal Party itself from someone who's seen it from both sides. So the other side interviews on demand and streaming Tuesday nights at 6pm and the other side Australia weekly wrap is every Friday night at 8pm. But please do support us by telling your friends, downloading the ADH TV app for them on their phones and their smart TVs, and we'll catch you next week.